You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee from Acumen Law, as usual. And with me, back again by popular demand, is Paul Doroshenko. Glad to be back. Are you? Yes, I am glad to be back. I enjoyed the listening to the ones last couple of weeks, but I'm, you know, I, I do enjoy this. I enjoy these discussions. And I mean, the reality is that we don't often have time in the office to discuss these things in the way that we would like. This is true. We, in fact, we re, the reality is we don't often have time in the office to discuss anything except the most pressing case that's on our desks at any given moment. Yeah, uh, and all of those horrible other things that one has to do to run a law office. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, uh, it can be a, quite a distraction. So we don't get to talk as much as we would like. It's usually passing in the hallway. Sometimes there's like, a a, did talk. you did you see this? And uh, so there's been, we've had like three weeks that uh, I haven't been on. You had good guests though. Yes. Scott yeah, McDonald I, from I the them. Cannabis Crashes book, as well as Caitlin Perrin from Alberta. But speaking of, did you see this? Did you see this thing that ICBC is doing? Oh, the, uh, the reports, yes. So that should be our first thing to discuss if yes. we're going to discuss it. Yes. So some background. <clears throat> ICBC financial dumpster fire set this this far this year. The Insurance Corporation of British Columbia, yeah. which is our socialist insurance company. Uh, you have all sorts of rights in this country. You have a, you know basically a right to health care. You've got a right to an education. And in uh, BC. You've got, and in BC, you've got a right to insure your car. Yeah. Same within well, Saskatchewan I mean, and can... Manitoba and... But we have a government-run insurance company here, as opposed to Alberta. You have a right to assume that the other person who's driving has insurance on their car, through ICBC. I don't know that I would call that a right, but that's perhaps a discussion for another day. And there's an inherent conflict all the time, because ICBC is acting for both parties. Anyway, that's not the discussion. The discussion is... I'm not knocking ICBC, I'm just saying. They're set to lose another 1.18 billion dollars in the first eight months of 2018 based on the projected totals they haven't done added up the numbers yet um 1.18 billion dollars which is an insane amount of money and like to conceptualize the difference between a million and a billion is almost impossible unless you have a diagram it's a lot more Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for that helpful explanation. Paul Doroshenko, folks, he's here all night. Um, Well, I mean, all you have to count is duffel bags at, uh, on, on a CCTV video at a British Columbia (laughs) casino. casino. Uh, And it's enough duffel bags. I mean, it's, it would take a lot of duffel bags is what I'm saying. Yeah. You'd need a couple e-pirate investigations. Yeah. Anyway, so... Given their horrible financial losses, the government has been scrambling to come up with all sorts of changes. We had Thomas Harding on earlier this year to talk about some of the most recent ones. Before that, we had Eric McGracken on. Now I have you to talk about the latest one, which is limiting the number of experts that you can have in cases. So right now, you can have as many experts as you want. You can have a thousand experts if you really want to waste that kind of money. Um, I don't think that many people do, but you can. Also, if you hear a weird sound in the background, that is my dog. 
he is out of the hospital. More on that later. <laughs> Probably not. Um, the uh, So there's all these experts in all of these cases. And of course, if there's an expert and it's ordered by the plaintiff and the plaintiff is successful, some of what ICBC has to pay is the cost of the expert reports. So they're pointing again the finger at the plaintiff for ordering experts and wasting money essentially so now they're putting rules on it so you can only get one expert if the claim is a claim for under a hundred thousand dollars and if it's above a hundred thousand dollars at this point in time you can have your experts but they are going to be eventually implementing this by amending the supreme court regulations to say that nobody can have more than one expert except by way of court order or from uh, a joint experts so Okay, should point out for the record, I don't do a whole lot of ICBC injury claims. I've done a few over the course of my life. I don't like to dabble in things. Some clients have really wanted me to do their ICBC claim, um, and that's worked out fine. But we have Roy Ho uh, in our office in Richmond who does do a lot of ICBC claims. Probably he should be the one to talk about this. But um, I think in the grander scope of the ICBC problem, uh, and the strange conflict problem that we have in this province, it's something that, you know, we have opinions on. Uh, and, uh, you know, I find it very strange because the uh, the government made an uh, unusual decision when they made David Eby responsible for both the Attorney General's office and ICBC because basically they put the guy in the role of writing the rules in an adversarial system um, and then writing them for one of those, you know, that independent corporation, ICBC, quotes in the air, as I no, say. No, 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 it makes sense. David Eby's a lawyer. <clears throat> he was a very well-respected lawyer. Sure, but did you look at that report that they, the, they had the Attorney General's office look at, create, to say whether or not people were getting shortchanged? I mean, there was the, the, his office, so the Attorney General's office did an investigation into ICBC to see whether or not I see, you know, claimants were getting uh, lowball offers from ICBC and and getting a raw deal from ICBC, and it was his own office wrote a self-serving report, um, basically saying that oh no, none of us is none of this it's adversarial, and we're not going to blame the defense lawyers, but none of this is the is ICBC's fault really. Well, now and, they're and getting the, short changed. And then a week later, offers. well, then a week later, we have this situation. Uh, where they're coming and saying you can only have one expert. And, and what happens if you need an expert to talk about the damage that was caused and that that would cause you certain injury and another expert to say, you know, this is what the physiotherapy has to be or whatever. Yeah, or, you know, there's all sorts of different types of experts too. It's not just medical experts. You can have experts to talk about the speed that a vehicle was traveling at a particular point of impact to try and determine who's at fault or or, or issues of liability in a collision. You can have experts to talk about the mechanical fitness of a vehicle to determine whether there's any contributory negligence. Like there's different roles that experts play, not just in saying, you know, John has an injury to his foot and an injury to his brain. Psychological implications of suffering that injury. Oh, sure. And, yeah. you know, they're really trying to undercut the amount of damages that you can get for a psychological injury anyway by saying that if it doesn't, you know, last a certain amount of time, it's not really a psychological injury. From my perspective, looking at this and talking to so many ICBC lawyers, they all 
basically make the same claim and they say, look, I looked at it and we made them an offer and the offer made sense. It was a good offer. It was an early offer. And then we, they came back and said, you don't have the evidence and this is, you know, too much money um, that you're demanding in, in your offer. And so then, you know, the ICBC injury lawyer has says, okay, well, now I've got to run out and get all of these expert reports to be able to satisfy ICBC that this is what, you know, the claim should, should be worth. And um, so, you know, basically, if they're refusing them the ability to collect the evidence to be able to persuade ICBC of what they would be paid if there was a judgment, then, uh, you know, this is the adversarial system being totally screwed over. You know, and I think they could have done this a way better way if they were really concerned about the growing costs of using multiple experts in trials. I think there were ways they could have done it that would have alleviated those burdens. And there's sort of like a hint at it. Well, there's a a hint at it in what they say, because they say they want to encourage the use of joint experts. Well, why not instead of... Um, instead of, you know, saying only one expert and each side gets their one expert and pick your best injury or pick your best issue and, and hire your expert for that, why not just have a pool of joint experts that are available, um, that are funded um, by, you know, by tax dollars and if you lose your claim, then you have to pay that money back as part of the costs against you or whatever. Um, but why not have this pool of joint experts that don't, act for either side which an expert isn't supposed to anyway and then ah! let people choose from them for the purposes of of uh, advancing their claims i i don't like that why I, I don't like the idea of being restricted in who i can get i want to be able to get you know find the person who i am confident in just like you have a right to counsel you know you hire the lawyer you have confidence in who you want to represent you uh, you know, I would want to get an expert who I know is is <clears throat> skilled in that particular area. But one of the complaints that there's been about these experts and these competing experts in these cases has been that, you know, oh, Dr. So-and-so only works for the defense. And then the defense turns around and says, well, Dr., you know... Dr. Smith only works for the uh, the plaintiffs and, and they have all these arguments over the independence of the experts. At least if you had a pool of, of you know, court experts that belonged to the court that didn't, you know, get hired by either side, you wouldn't have time wasted over those types of arguments. In, in 15 minutes, you would have people making the same argument. These experts are all ICBC experts or, you know, this guy is the guy we want because he is defense oriented uh, you know good experts it's interesting actually reading the uh, Daryl Plekis report he, he came at it like a good expert good experts have this way of expressing themselves which um, provides you with the, the, the confidence you have and the courts are pretty good at sussing them out um, I, I, I would uh, I, I'm loath to think of having somebody who's you know, chosen by ICBC in the end, because how else are you going to do it unless you're going to have an organization of lawyers that, that vet them from the other side? Uh, and, and then why would you necessarily want that person if you were not part of that organization of lawyers? I, I don't see that as a, as a viable option. Well, then what would you do to fix it? <clears throat> I'm not saying that I necessarily have a brilliant plan to fix it. Um, again, I'm, you know, I, consider myself as a 
not a you know I don't practice in this in this area so I, I'm I'm not happy with the way that it is I think that maybe uh, truncated reports maybe um, could be the way to go where there's you know only so much money available for each different type of record report if it's under a hundred thousand um, dollars you know lots of times I have to phone an expert and I lay it out over the phone the expert or I you know explain it to them and I get a, a report that's a very short report for me to help me in litigation that I may not file or use in court. I may not call that expert in court. Uh, you know, I, I sort it out more quickly. So I, I think that there's room for some sort of cheaper reports, maybe a limit on the amount of money you can spend on reports rather than saying one expert, you know, uh, this is the amount that you can spend on a $10,000 claim on expert reports. I would prefer to see that. Right. Okay, so what about, and you and I had very briefly talked about this, what about how this is going to affect issues like the double cost rule? Because if you are, if you make an offer um, and that offer is rejected and then you go to trial and the amount of your judgment is equal to or greater than the offer, you essentially get punished for not being reasonable in your negotiations and you have to pay double costs. Did I explain that right? Close enough. I mean, that's as well as I understand it. Um, again, I'm not, you know, civil litigator. I'm a criminal defense lawyer and Isn't 90% this... a administrative driving and traffic ticket lawyer now. But isn't this a way for ICBC to try and get out of the fact that they were frequently being made to pay these costs orders because of the, you know, very bad way in which they were negotiating according to plaintiff's counsel? Were they? Were they frequently? Yes. It's yes. Eric, Eric and Thomas both say that? And Chris, yes. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, I suppose that is one of the ways to get around it. Um, you know, again, it's an issue of they're basically trying to limit your ability to get the evidence. And that makes me angry and I don't like it. And you think with IRPs, um, you know, they decided what evidence you were going to get. And we know lots of people are issued IRPs who are innocent because we are not capable of getting the disclosure that we would need to properly defend it. And it was written to the benefit of the government. Right. Well, also look at the fact that they're doing this in stages. So the first stage of this was to, you know, to introduce this new legislation in the tribunal. And the next stage of it was to, um, you know, to put other limits on the litigation. And the next stage of it was to revoke all previous offers and, and put new final absolute offers that were really lowball offers. If you're further bureaucratizing the socialist insurance company into deeper into the socialism. And now... And now, after that process that some might say is a failure to negotiate in good faith, and if you want a more extensive discussion on that, you can listen to the podcast with Thomas. Now, you have this action that appears to be designed to get around a rule that's meant to punish people for behaving in exactly this way. And, and I get all that, and as I'm sitting here thinking about it, I'm thinking to myself, something that I maybe have said before, I've thought about it, I don't know that I've told anybody about it, but maybe it's just the cost of insuring. And if this is the case, maybe we just have to have much more expensive insurance. I mean, ICBC's insurance rates are 
I, I would be surprised if any private company could come along and do better if they were in the situation where they were compelled to basically provide insurance to anybody who came along and who fulfilled the requirements. Like the ICBC can't reject anybody. Right. And private insurance companies could come in and say, I'm not going to accept any of these people. You know, The world's uh, shittiest driving <clears throat> records. Yeah. And-, um, and ICBC is forced to accept them. And of course, you know, they're going to increase now the premiums for those people. But really what it gets down to here is that this is the cost of doing business. Uh, in innovation in insurance is infrequent and really not revolutionary in any way. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe we've just been subsidizing it uh, in so many different ways. Maybe it's just an issue of, of readjusting premiums across the board, uh, you know, punishing people more who drive expensive cars that cost a lot more money. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, part of it I've said before, and I'll say it again, um, you know, body shops in British Columbia uh, have ridiculous overhead because of their taxes and, and real estate costs. They've also got ridiculous overhead because we have to pay people a lot to get anybody to work in Vancouver or Richmond or Burnaby um, and lots of places like that. The wages have to be very high because all of those people are traveling in already from Surrey and they could barely afford to live there. Uh, and these are the costs of a out-of-control uh, real estate prices over the last decade. That is forcing, you know, it's it's ultimately coming around and hitting us in our car insurance. Absolutely, I'm yeah. I mean, and maybe that maybe that is, but can people who are living here in the Lower Mainland afford to pay higher insurance premiums? There's lots of people just struggling to get by, but there's you know we still see a a ridiculous number of high end luxury cars. Sure. Um, you know it's. It, it, you're almost embarrassed if you're not driving at least an infinity or, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's quite silly. I mean, you, you go to the, basically from main street West in the city and, and the vast majority of the cars are that way. And it's, they're really expensive to repair. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, I just think maybe like I, every time I look at these claims and I think of, okay, now you got to spread that cost of that claim out over so many numbers of drivers, uh, and their car insurance and then one of those drivers is going to have a claim in the next six months. You know, the the costs of the claims and the costs that are paid out are high. They're very high. They probably don't compensate people properly, but it's a ton of money. And, you know, you're paying a few thousand dollars for insurance for your car for a year. Maybe it has to double that. I hate the thought. I love to drive. But maybe that's the issue. And insurance, I guess, premiums wouldn't have to go up to the level that... <coughs> Um, you'd see with private insurers because ICBC is not supposed to be a for-profit company. So they just have to raise them to the break-even point. Well, ICBC has some other expenses that other companies don't have. I mean, they, they do a lot with licensing. They do a lot more uh, that's, that's, safety things. That's all covered by ICBC's licensing fee system. Oh, I know. But they still do a lot of other things that, that other companies don't do. And they have to respond to freedom of information requests. Uh, they have to, you know, there's a greater obligation of fairness than there is in the private companies. I mean, it's a government organization. They're bound by all sorts of legislation that, that binds government organizations. They do have other expenses. Um, and But, you know, generally you think the surplus that's created that would normally be taken by the shareholders, um, you know, is is absorbed in that. 
I don't think that they could do it much. I, you know, I, I keep looking at it and I don't see how they can do much, much more cheaply. Like they, they actually seem fairly not as top heavy as they could be for a socialist insurance company. Well, I mean, you say this after the CEO just gave himself mm. a $50,000 bonus. And if there were any other company... Every one of those if, bonuses is just terrible. Like those opti- bonuses optics are, are awful. Awful. I can't believe that David Eby isn't putting a stop to that. Hey, David Eby, do you want to come on the podcast again and explain why you're still letting them have ludicrous bonuses that are more than the salaries of most British Columbians? When their company is losing a billion dollars and any CEO who was in that situation would be fired? No? Crickets? No. Well, the... Uh, would they, would <laughs> we they, are making a Would recording. they be fired? Lots of companies lost money for a long time and then eventually went bankrupt. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I'm thinking like, you know... Sears? GM? Well, GM's not gone bankrupt. But, no, but... You know, if, but Woodward's If they Sears, lost a billion dollars, the CEO would not be getting a bonus. He'd be getting a boot out the door. Uh, yeah, I or mean, you can hang bailout. on for a long time and you pay yourself a bonus. And then just before you, you know, shut the thing down, you pay yourself a bonus and then you quit just soon enough that you're not going to be on the hook for any back pay to, to employees because you're no longer a a uh, principal of the company or what have you. I guess I'm just Whatever saying I'd fire is. them all, but that's me and I'm not the AG. I wouldn't fire them all, but I would, um, I, I would want to have a meeting to understand i'm sure there have been a few why they're paying themselves bonuses anyway let's move on because i don't think that is that exciting of a story it's an interesting one but it's part of the escalating bureaucratization and taking away rights in the belief that people are getting too much money in their claims which doesn't seem to be uh substantiated All right. Uh, Well, the next thing I wanted to talk about, something that gets a lot of attention this time of year, whenever it happens, that it snows for a week in the Lower Mainland, and that's rules around clearing snow from your vehicle. Well, you surprised me. Surprise topic. I love a surprise topic for you, always. Well, um, I don't know the rules. I would assume that you have to have all your uh, windows and uh, lights and license plate clean and not have any snow that's going to fall on your window and obstruct it. But I don't know what where that is in the Motor Vehicle Act. What is the rule? It's in the Motor Vehicle Act regulations. <coughs> and this is what's actually interesting about it because a photo went, you know, locally viral uh, this past week of a driver in Richmond. It was tweeted out by the Richmond RCMP. And the entire rear of the vehicle was covered in snow. So the whole back window was obstructed by snow. Uh, The license plate was obstructed by snow. I don't know why there wasn't a ticket for uh, a non-visible plate. There was snow piled up on the roof. But the front of the car and the side windows had been cleared. So the driver had taken steps to clear windows and had just left the, the roof in the back of the car. Now, they also tweeted along with this photo... A picture of the portion of the ticket that set out the offense that he was charged with. And this is what I find fascinating because they tweeted a photo of charging him under the wrong section. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> so in the Motor Vehicle Act regulations, section uh, uh, regulation 7, um, there is there are two separate regulations that deal with seeing out your windows. One is uh, 7.01 
which refers to not having your view out uh, the windshield or any window of the vehicle obstructed. And the other one under which this driver was charged was 7.02. And 7.02 says not to affix a decal, sticker, um, object, or thing to the windshield or any window in such a manner as it would unduly impair the vision of the driver. Oh my goodness. Did you tweet back at them that they issued Of course the I did. And any response? Uh, a bunch of people called me an idiot because obviously the driver was in the wrong. Um, so, you know, Twitter at doing its best. And a bunch of people found it very funny um, that they had charged under the wrong section. But no response from any of the, you know, authorities. Oops. Oops. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it happens. The guy probably paid the ticket. Well, it's under the regulations. It's got no impact except the cost. Yes. But I, I thought it was an interesting issue because some people wanted me to explain when I tweeted this out why. Because I just said, oh, it looks like he charged him under the wrong section. Oops. Yep. Or something to that effect. And uh, that he should, I'd love to defend a ticket like this. Um, oh, that's why you said it. That's why you got attacked. Well, yeah. Because they didn't look at the what you were saying and you said you yeah. love to defend a ticket like this. Kyla likes to defend tickets. It's I, true. I do. And I like to defend tickets where there's a really mm. good, nuanced legal argument. We did a, um, last Saturday in the office, we had uh, a four and a half hour exercise in cross-examination. Um, of course, we've got all sorts of people who work in the office and we like to refine and continue to work on our skills. And Kyla and I have you know, said for the longest time that we should be training people better in cross-examination. It wasn't something that I was trained in, in law school or during my articles. And I, you know, went out and trained myself and I explained it to Kyla when she started off and she took it 10 steps further than me. Um, but we, uh, we dealt with... You just with, did 10 times as many trials as you. Well, in a short period of time. Yeah, you've done lots. But the, um, especially traffic ticket trials. But the... Um, you don't always have something good to work with. And there's nothing better than having something like that where they've charged under the wrong section. Yeah, because then you explain it to them and sometimes mm. they're all bullish about it. They're like, it doesn't matter. And then they get to learn that it does. Or... You're sitting in the hallway with them and you're explaining it to them. And you're like, oh, this is not good. You, this is an error. Yeah, you can often, you know, negotiate something out that's fair and you just, you know, treat them well. And mm -hmm. most of the police officers are very balanced and reasonable to deal with. Not all. And everybody's got a good day and a bad day. Yep. Anyway, the, um, the section's interesting too because I was thinking about it and this is what I want to talk to you about because I'm sure you don't really care about, you know, obstructed windshield or window versus, you know, a, a thing placed on it. But... Both sections refer to the word unduly. And in statutes, of course, you, you presume that the legislator speaks with purpose, that what they're saying when they write a statute has meaning, including every single word that they use. And so what's the purpose of unduly? And I thought about it because you can lawfully have things obstructing your rear windshield. You can buy those toe-behind-you campers so that you, you know, like my dad has one of these campers, like a convert your pickup into an RV, and then you can't see out the rear windshield. 
But and you mean a camper that fits in the box? Yeah, that that thingy. Sure. Or I mean, you can hang some blind there because you've got a child and a baby seat or something. Yep, <coughs> and you have um, you get those those vans, those um, like cargo vans where they've um, blacked out the or painted over the windows. Sure. And you have your truck, for example, which you installed an aftermarket canopy on. Which, yeah, impedes the which impedes rear window. Which impedes your view out the rear window. And nobody's ticketed for any of that. Well, it's not unduly. Exactly. And the reason it's not unduly, <clears throat> I investigated this, but for a deep dive into the regs. The reason it's not unduly is because you don't have to have a vision out your rear windshield unless you don't have two side mirrors. So if you have vision out your rear windshield, you only have to have a driver's side mirror. But if you don't have vision out your rear windshield, then you have to have a driver and a passenger side mirror. And your rear window. And that is why I tweeted at that photo when I saw it, when Linda Steele tweeted it. I tweeted, I can see both mirrors. Yeah. Because I thought, you know what? There's... <clears throat> you only have to be, see, to be able to see well enough. I left Edmonton once driving for Canmore, and I turned at Car- Cochrane Carstairs Cremona, and it was minus 40, and it was actually terrifying, and the snow was blowing, and I stopped at a gas station halfway through, uh, and I got out of the, my Volvo, and I brushed my Volvo off very well. It was a 240 Volvo, and the whole back of it had turned into like a, a teardrop shape of snow, going back five feet off the back of the car <laughs> and it, you couldn't see any of the taillights. You couldn't see the rear window. You know, it was just so cold that it wouldn't, my rear window defroster couldn't melt it on the rear window. It had, it had formed into that while driving. And I wasn't about to stop because when it's minus 40, you don't stop on a farm road at nighttime. You keep driving until you get wherever you're going to go because you don't want to die. Well, then you uh, weren't going to be pulled over anyway. <clears throat> Well, the police might have pulled me over. They'd be willing to stop with their cars. They had more reliable vehicle. And <laughs> mind you, I I put over two hundred thousand kilometers on that Volvo, and it, it never left me dead. But I had scary times in it. But that was actually that was quite funny because I got out of the car and I'm looking at it at the gas station. I didn't want to knock it off because I couldn't believe this thing had hung onto the back of the car for so long down the highway and you know been constructed as I drove. But I didn't intend that. But it wouldn't be unduly. But then I was thinking about that car. You know, it's got snow on the roof. You know, you brush it off. Maybe you don't brush it all off and it ends up blowing down onto the rear window and you, you're going to pull over at some point and fix it. Mm, I don't know. Yep, but that's a different offense. And with traffic tickets, you have to charge under the right section. Yes, true. Okay. Moving on to another... Um, topic i can't tangentially relate to this in any way what happens when people's vehicles get impounded because oh, they this got... is a good topic why didn't we talk about this at the start this is a great topic because i wanted to save the best for last okay all right saving the best for last kyla lee go ahead now i've interrupted you your flow i know um <laughs> what happens when people's vehicles get impounded for an immediate roadside prohibition mandatory 30-day impound you succeed in the dispute which you do very often congratulations thank you um and the vehicle is then ordered to be released by an order of release faxed to the tow yard 
and the tow yard doesn't release the vehicle. Well, that's one part of the story. We've seen this this week. The other part of the story is, why didn't they release the vehicle? So there's two parts of this story. So what we've seen now is a tow yard on the North Shore, which has refused... Can we name it? Is Mitchell's? Yeah. Yeah, Mitchell's towing on the North Shore. And probably not the last place that this will will do this. Uh, They have refused to release vehicles, even when the person has had a successful immediate roadside prohibition decision rendered, and the the tow company has been... um, Uh, received an order from the superintendent's office to release the vehicle. They are refusing to release vehicles because it has taken too long for the superintendent of motor vehicles office to pay for the towing and storage. So apparently Road Safety VC (coughs) owes Mitchell's towing like thousands of dollars in back unpaid bills. For all those IRPs you won. For all the IRPs I won. Yeah, well, they have to pay their staff, and they've got to, you know, cost money to go tow cars. Yeah, it costs money to tow cars. They have to pay their staff. They have to keep the lights on. They have to pay rent for the property. Running a business isn't free or cheap. Government often thinks that it is. Well, the government does think it is, because nobody in government is thinking, not even at the top. There's no one person in government who, at the end of the day, has to think about it, all of what it costs to run the thing. And you are a business owner. I'm a business owner. We know know that we have to spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about how much it costs. And there's cash flow every month. There's cash flow. You've got to be able to pay the bills. So Mitchell's Towing stopped releasing vehicles and is demanding that the drivers pay for their own uh, towing and storage fees even when they've won their immediate roadside prohibition hearing. And the legislation entitles the person uh, to get their vehicle out and to be the, for the towing to be paid for. And the tow company has no lawful authority to retain the vehicle. They don't have a contract as between the driver and the um, themselves. They have a contract as between the government and them. So they're holding it hostage. Yes. And um, this is the second time we've run into it. And you would think the first time that we ran into it, that the government would have stepped up and said, you know what, we're going to get a check to you within 48 hours. Uh, we're sorry about this. You're, you know, we are behind. They have people working on the Lower Mainland. Mm. They have offices on the North Shore, government offices. Somebody could have taken out a checkbook and gone and walked over there. Paid Mitchell's towing. But uh, so who's in the wrong? Well, the government and Mitchell's towing. Yes. Um, and Mitchell's towing is, um, you know, going to run into some problems here because they are unlawfully holding people's vehicles. And there will be repercussions, I can tell you that. The first case Um, I had of it, I tried, first I tried phoning Road Safety BC when the client phones, of course, in a panic. Um, This is how we hear about it, through the client. We don't hear about it because Road Safety BC is like, oh, just by the way. And it's not like Mitchell's towing is phoning us. Um, So I contacted Road Safety BC. They said, oh, yeah, well, we know there's an issue. There's not really much that we can do about it. Your client can just pay for it and we'll reimburse them, which to me, was not an acceptable answer. Like, I don't know about you, Paul. Well, I do know about you. But most people don't have an extra $800 lying around to pay for an impound fee that they shouldn't be on the hook for because they've already been told that the police were in the wrong to issue the prohibition and the impound in the first place. 
Well, these are people who have already had to pay a filing fee, a $200 filing fee, Mm-hmm. To file their IRP in dispute, they they've haven't had, had their license. They've had they haven't had their license for three weeks, so they've been paying for that. They probably had to pay for a lawyer because they, you know, if you want to succeed on one of these things, you're much wiser to have a lawyer uh, and um, improve your chances significantly. Um, so they, they're already out a bunch of money, and now the government's saying we can't fulfill our obligation. Mitchell's towing isn't going to fulfill their obligation. This is the obligation in law, yet all the time, as the applicant, you must do everything according to their rules, according yep. to their timeline. Um, you know, they get to to make rules that are outside of the legislation. Uh, and then when it comes to a rule that's actually in the law, they're not complying with it. And it's pretty frustrating. And, and once again, like, you know, you, you're always wanting to it's one of those things where, like, you're not going to run to court to get a remedy. You don't want to be like. I'm look- tempted. Well, I know, but um, it's you'll be looked at like this is ridiculous. You're suing over eight hundred dollars or whatever. Um, you don't want to necessarily run to court to get a remedy by criticizing them. Maybe you're calling the administration of their justice system into disrepute. No, you're not. Are no, you? How are you criticizing them <clears throat> and calling the administration of justice into disrepute? They have. The government has a legal obligation to pay the tow company. They entered into a contract. They chose that company to fulfill that contract, and they're not holding up their end of the bargain. The only thing there that brings the administration of justice into disrepute is the failure of government to step up to the plate and meet its financial obligations in a timely fashion. I criticize the government in any way, and there's somebody who's going to allege that I'm you know, motivated for some other reason than Well, I don't know what you could possibly be motivated for in this situation <clears throat> other than your concern for people who are innocent because you have to prove that you don't deserve the prohibition, which means you prove your innocence in these cases. It's not a matter of, you know, being found not guilty in the beyond a reasonable doubt standard. You have to prove that you are innocent. So this is ridiculous. I mean, it's it's once again one more shocking thing about the IRP scheme that if you had a chance to go in front of a provincial court judge uh, <laughs> and, and explain this during the course of a trial, if that was how IRPs were resolved, look at what happened in that. <clears throat> you in would that have a judge. Case. You would have a judge ordering that a sheriff go over there and have your car released. But look at that fentanyl case. That guy <clears throat> didn't have his car for like a couple days while it was being searched. And that impact... Hours, hours. It was hours. hours. It was the same afternoon. It was hours. Hours. And that impact was significant enough on him to weigh heavily in favor of excluding the evidence of 27,500 fentanyl pills. How is it that this, a tow company refusing to give somebody who's entitled to their vehicle that they have no lawful entitlement to back to them and the government refusing to make good on its financial debts which if by the way if you don't pay your debt to the government if you say you know what i don't have the 138 dollars to pay you for my traffic ticket right now but i really need my license to keep my job can i pay my traffic ticket another time and renew my license today they'll say no and not give you your license yeah, I know. If you don't pay your driver risk premium invoice within 60 days, you pay 19% interest. I know. And again, I say this is because they put it in a tribunal 
It's not something that goes before the court. And as a consequence, they can get away with this. And from their perspective, they're just looking at it like, oh, yeah, your problem. We're not complying with the law. Yeah. And so you ask Road Safety BC about this, though. You know, you phone mm-hmm. them and you say, well, what are you going to do about this? This is happening to more than one person. And their response is, well, you know, we're running it up the ladder and we're reviewing the contract. So rather than recognizing that this problem is at least in part their fault because of their shoddy practices, they are just going to cancel the contract of the tow company who, you know, fair enough, deserves to have their contract canceled because they're not acting in compliance with it either. But they're not taking any responsibility. Well, I think they're actually in a good position also to, to sue the government if they lose that contract because the uh, the government hasn't fulfilled its contractual obligations either, obviously. No, paying, clearly not. Paying. Pay. <laughs> pay goes to the essence of the contract, right? <laughs> On-time paying. If, you, if you're if you a tenant and you uh, regularly are late paying your rent and regularly is as much as two times uh, in BC, then you could be evicted. So... I mean, if they regularly don't pay their their bill on time, I think they're in a good position to sue the government if they lose that contract on that basis. Yeah. Anyway, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. And I really want to hear from people if other than at Mitchell's Towing in uh, um, West Vancouver, if they've had their vehicles impounded and then had the tow yards refuse to release them when they've been given an order of release. It'll be interesting to see, but of course you do more IRPs than anybody, so you'll probably see them before anybody else. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of Driving Law. I apologize for my dog barking in the background. I'm just happy he's alive, so everybody please just be happy with me. Um, He was very sick for a very long time. He was in the ICU for 30 days. His kidneys had shut down. His kidneys were... uh, he had a, um, an infection and uh, didn't look like he was going to survive. And he survived, and he's uh, now home after, again, more than 30 days in the hospital. And um, he's, he's doing pretty well. Uh, his personality, for a while there, he was very toned down and not barking. He was really now, a much better dog. <laughs> as you heard, Kyla's bringing him into the office uh, and, and, and we'll permit that, I think, because, uh, he was much missed. If you want to reach out to us and tell us your own horror stories about, um, issues with impounds, or you have questions about driving law, clearing snow off your vehicle, or changes to ICBC, you can reach us at 604-685-8889 or online vancouvercriminallaw.com. And if you tune in next week, there'll be another exciting episode of Driving Law. Driving Law.